Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. You might remember that we are talking to J.Y. Kim, and he talked a little bit about his story last time and how the church for ethnic minority communities in the United States were really the center of their life. In his world, he talked about church as analog because his church is in the middle of Silicon Valley. And he continues that conversation today, talking about what it means to be incarnate, uh, the church incarnate, in a pretty powerful way. I think you'll enjoy this. Yeah, so this understanding of salvation as a primarily primarily an intellectual ascent uh, predates the digital age, of course. I mean, scholasticism yeah. inclined us in that direction for sure. Uh, yeah. But it, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you speak, um, it, it's occurring to me that the digital age is not helping us counteract that understanding of salvation, that it might be accelerating it, right? Uh, there's other incentives yeah. for uh, locating salvation in cognitive ascent. It's a lot less costly to uh, to the person um, yeah. than it would be to involve yourself in a local community of faith. It's a lot right. safer. It's a lot less risky. So to have a conversation one-on-one with someone is not as controllable as texting someone on my time or yeah. emailing them. Um, it's, it's a, it is much more emotionally, spiritually engaging to be in the flesh with somebody else than communicating via the, uh, phone or, or computer. So there are, there are incentives for us not to get involved. Um, so in your, your, I'm recommending your book period, just I'm recommending it. Um, you, <laughs> it's, it's much more comprehensive than we could obviously talk about in uh, 30, 40 minutes. But one of the most telling uh, illustrations or examples you had in chapter five was when Mark Zuckerberg, and I was not aware of this, claimed in 2017 that Facebook was the new church. I mean, that is, that is remarkable that he would, that, I mean, it's not, it's not, incomprehensible, it's just remarkable that he would consider that the digital relationships might compensate for what someone might discover in a church. And then you quoted uh, uh, Peter Amarad, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, who evidently is no little theologian, no mean theologian, because he responded to Zuckerberg's claim that Facebook is the new church uh, with a pretty good description of what involvement in a local church means. Uh, and mm-hmm. a, could I read a little bit from your text and from his, because I think this kind of encapsulates what we're talking about. Sure. Here's, he wrote in The Guardian on June 29, 2017, now it feels a little impertinent to challenge this 21st century deity 
meaning Mark Zuckerberg. But here goes, you're talking piffle, Mark, because at their best, churches offer perspective on life fundamentally opposed to the culture Facebook encourages and upon which it feeds. For one, churches are messy. They are not organized by any algorithm or tailored to the individual end user. Far from it, a church service is not made for any one person. The same liturgies have been intoned in the same song sung by millions of people all over the world, in many cases over the course of the centuries. We can't just flick past the bits we don't like. We are confronted with discomfitting, I mean, discomfitting Bible passages, impenetrable mysteries, harrowing truths. Unlike Facebook, a church tells us that we are not at the center of the world. I think you quoted that section in your text. Um, so there's incentives for us not to be so involved. What are the what are the incentives for us to become involved? How and and I guess I'm asking this question of you as a pastor. Yeah. How do you call your people to participation in the body of Christ? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, we face the same challenge that I think so many church leaders are facing today. It was a challenge we were facing before the pandemic, but it's certainly been accelerated by the pandemic. You know, the challenge of um, inspiring and motivating and also teaching, um, you know, people toward the importance, not and not just the importance, but the necessity of uh, embodied church. I was just having a conversation in a staff meeting right before I jumped on this call with you all um, about uh, somebody was asking about streaming a particular service during Christmas um, services for us. And and then I got really impassioned and talked about what streaming is or isn't for us sort of thing. And I think, you know, first, the challenge is it's just more comfortable and convenient to watch. <laughs> but Anytime a watching experience essentially means by its nature, what, what we are doing is we are consuming content. And I think that's one of the great challenges we face today. So many people think that the church, when you say church, I think what people think is, oh, that's like Christian content I can choose to consume at my own leisure, at my own pace, when it's convenient to me, um, and just sort of like my Netflix queue of different you know, television shows or movies, if I don't like it, ah, it's easy enough to turn it off and go to the next, you know? Um, but church is not content. I mean, church, biblically speaking, is a people. And it's not just any people, it's an unlikely people. You know, our mutual friend, Dr. Scott McKnight, talks about um, the church as a fellowship of difference, many different types of people who are now inexplicably, inexplicably bound up together in the family of God in the most unlikeliest of ways. And I think that that is specifically why God intends for the church to be embodied and to show up together. Because when we do, um, we bear witness to a divided world that uh, union with one another and union with the divine is possible. And that it's miraculous. It is truly miraculous that, um, you know, the Republican and the Democrat in our day and age, or the liberal and the progressive, or the whatever, the rich and the poor, on and on, that they could be bound up in the same family together. It, it just feels impossible outside of the boundary lines of God's family. And, and then as we do that, as we do that work of showing up, not just consuming church content from 
the confines of our sort of isolated individualistic lives, but as we show up together and put on display for the world, um, what it looks like when people who shouldn't be together are together, then it also declares to the world that the boundary lines of God's family are um, broader and ever expanding, you know, in ways that you cannot even possibly imagine and that you can belong, that you can belong and that you have a seat at the table, you know? And I think there are so many other reasons, but I think that's one of the first reasons that comes to mind. It's really an opportunity. I think the church, the embodied church specifically has an opportunity, particularly in our day and age, um, to bear witness and to um, uh, paint a vision for the world of what's possible when we allow God by his grace uh, to bind us together as family, um, as unlikely as that may seem. And so for me, I think particularly because of the cultural moment that we're in, I think for pastors and church leaders, if we could inspire and motivate our people um, to that great calling, uh, to, to bear witness and to paint a vision for the world of what's possible in God's kingdom, um, I, I think that that, uh, that can be significantly motivating for people. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that we talk about on this podcast when it comes to incarnational ministry is that ministry in every context as pastors and theological practitioners can be profoundly different in the ways that Mm. it's contextualized. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, for you pastoring in Silicon Valley, what is contextualizing that very good news that you just talked about of this alternative kingdom, this alternative way of living, this alternative people? uh, What is contextualizing that good news in your context look like? What's it sound like? How do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I don't have some brilliant philosophical answer. I just have tactile on the ground, slow and steady yeah. sort of stuff. You're so with your people. So yeah, language we use here at a staff level and then congregationally and this is language we've used for the last couple of years, and we say it often, um, we want to create lingering spaces mm. here. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about that quite a bit. So we actually have once a month, we have Sundays where we call them linger longer Sundays. And so our team does a fantastic job. They go above and beyond and and work really hard to create literally physical environments wow. where people can can linger. Wow. And they're not glitzy. They're not fancy. A couple of months ago, it was so not fancy. We literally grilled hot dogs. We're just like, listen, like those of you who have little kids, we know you probably don't want a hot dog, but your kids want three hot dogs. So (laughs) let your kids run around on our grass, eat as many hot dogs as they want and linger and hang out and meet some folks and just set up cornhole. So it's one of the benefits of being in California. We have sunshine nine, 10 months out of the year, so we can do that. So we try to take advantage. We've um, sort of reorganized and repurposed a lot of our space, our actual physical space, to create lingering spaces. Um, one of my favorite things about Sundays, every Sunday, we have a whole group of young professionals in their 20s and early 30s who sort of attend one of our services together. And they all, t- they take up like one half of our um, room together, our sanctuary together. And then after the 1045 service, just about every Sunday, 
they all walk across the street and we'll grab some burgers together and come back and they'll sit on the grass, which is right outside my office window. Mm. So after services, I'll spend some time in my office catching up on email and getting ready for the week. And there will be 50, 60 um, young adults just sitting on the grass outside my office for hours, wow. just sharing a meal, breaking bread. And I'll, I always go out and just say hello and hang out. And um, that's the stuff that feels human in such a, in so many was what feels like an inhumane sort of detached world. And I see it particularly amongst emerging generations who actually spent their digital natives and they spend the majority of their time during the week online. You know, they're the most comfortable online and yet they are also the most profoundly desperate and hungry for tactile analog embodied realities. So yeah, nothing sexy, just we're, we're just trying to create lingering spaces for our people. So expediting church for people um, so that it does not cost them a whole lot of investment is exactly the wrong strategy for people disconnected by digital relationships. That's right. So yeah. some of the more valuable uh, spaces in the church are not spaces that are used for teaching or preaching. Some of the most valuable spaces in church are places where people can just be with one another, where yeah. culture is truly formed. Yeah. Um, and so calling, I'm understanding church not as a content generator, which is not, is kind of the word language you use. I mean, it, it was a, it was an yeah. insightful sentence that I can't remember you said just a minute ago, but church as a, as a community of faith where, yeah. uh, disparate people come together, uh, united only by their confession of, or by primarily by their confession of Jesus as the Christ. Right. Um, and so creating, understanding church as the formation of a people yep. would mean we need as church leaders to think about how to do church differently. It would require us to be more immersed ourselves in the lives of our people, I'm thinking. Yeah. And uh, yeah. to be more present to them ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah, that's really well said. You know, one of the, one of the thoughts that comes to mind as I'm as I'm hearing you say that is um one of the most dangerous temptations of digital technologies is the allure of reach and impact. So I can, you know, if I can grow my brand and I'm using air quotes here, if I can grow my brand and grow my followers and get a lot of people on my Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and same same thing ecclesiologically if, if we can just grow our church's brand and have, you know, thousands of followers on whatever platform, then the moment I post one thing, that gets out to the masses. And um, that's a way to essentially form people, right? That's what we believe, reach and impact. But to your point, you know, I, I totally agree. I actually think the work of formation by its nature is counterintuitive to reach and impact. It is by nature slow and it is by nature steady and it doesn't rely on reach. It relies on relationship and rapport. So when Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, 
remain in me or the old English abide in me, a way to translate that in common modern nomenclature would be linger with me. Right. Right. Stay a while, stay connected, and then you will bear fruit. And anybody who's had like a fruit tree in their front or backyard, they know like you cannot microwave an orange. You just have to water it and make sure it has the right sunlight, nutrients, and literally over many months, you get to a particular season. You're like, oh, there's the orange. And then you wait long periods of time before you have another orange, you know? And and I think that's what the life of of following Jesus looks like. So I, I love what you I love what you said. I think that um like for me, just personally, and this is not to pat myself on the back, it's really to give credit to our church and the culture that's been created here long before me. Um I I lead and serve a large church. It's what people would might categorize I hate this term, but they would categorize it like a mega church based on the numbers. But we talk about on our staff quite a bit, doesn't matter our size. We're not going for big and cool. What we're going for is warm and relational. Hmm. So we don't want to be cool. We want to be warm, no matter what. That's the goal. And a part of what that looks like for me is I'm the lead pastor of a multi-site, multi-congregational church where average attendance is whatever. It's like thousands of people, whatever. But last Tuesday... I um I don't know if you guys have ever done these. I went to an escape room with six of our 20 and 30 something year old young professionals, that crew that sits and has lunch. I went to an escape room with them because every Sunday I go out and see these guys having lunch in front of my office and I've struck up conversation and they think it's so strange that the lead pastor of a big church would hang out with them. And randomly they asked me, they said, hey, would you ever hang out with us just in the middle of the week, like on a weeknight? And they expected me to say no. I was like, I would love to. And again, not to pat myself on the back, this is what all of our staff do. They embody this. So on a Tuesday night, I went to an escape room with like six 20 and 30-something-year-olds in our church, and I heard their stories, and we escaped from this random room, and it was so much fun. And it was hyper-inefficient. I share that story to say it was really inefficient. Like, on paper... That's, you could argue, that's not a good use of my time. There are thousands of people at our church. I should strategize and figure out a way to write a quippy little tweet and get it out to the thousands of people so that they're inspired and they're inspired enough to come back to church the next Sunday. But that's, that's great. And I'm not knocking that. I think that's a fine thing to do. But if that takes the place of spending a couple of hours with a handful of people who are a part of your church family then I'm not sure that that's actually pastoring. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's good stuff. Like I think it's content creation and and writing and and I'm all for that. And I I do some of that stuff as well. But primarily I'm called to pastor and shepherd a community of people. And I think what that looks like is slow and steady inefficient work filled with laughter and relationship and deep relational connection that happens slowly over time. And whether you serve and lead a big church or a small church, I think all pastors are called to that work. And if we're not doing that, that's fine. But I think it's disingenuous to call it pastoring, you know? 
So maybe those are strong words, but that's kind of how I feel about it. So I was with a couple this morning for breakfast and uh, they were apologizing because they were, uh, they they, they used to attend the church I'm pastoring, uh, which perhaps would not be considered a, it's not considered a mega church, but it's more than a couple hundred folk. And they were apologetic that they were attending a church of 70 people. Uh, they, they thought that they needed to apologize for that. And it just came out of my mouth. And it's easy to kind of diss on mega churches these days. I'm not interested in doing that. Churches are the bride of Christ, and we ought to be respectful of the husband's view of his bride. So I'm not inclined to be critical of hardly any church at all. Um, but I said, you know, Jesus never did attend a mega church, by the way. Um, I mean, if you right. think of the synagogues in, in, in Israel at the time, they were, they were smallish affairs. And yeah. concerning the strategy of kingdom building, uh, Jesus never filled an amphitheater. He never, they were there. They had amphitheaters there. Colosseums could have been filled. Jesus' strategy, the, the revolutionary nature of the gospel, which we sometimes don't see because we're so familiar with it, Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time with persons one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're thinking as effective strategy for getting the message out, that is not how we would pursue it. Mm. Yeah. Jesus was incredibly inefficient. Right. <laughs> but spent the day with Zacchaeus and refused to allow a woman yeah. to be healed without seeing her and... Yeah. recognizing her as a person and having best friends in the persons of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you don't do that from a distance. You do that mm-hmm. by living with folk. Yeah. And so um, if kingdom is culture and if salvation is more than cognitive ascent, then presence with persons matters. And for you to spend, would you call it a break? Would you call escape it a room. escape room? Yes. <laughs> for you to spend an uh, an afternoon, a couple hours with a few number of folk in an escape room, probably speaks more of the nature of the kingdom than mm. the platform from which you're privileged to preach. Mm. And it kind it kind of it justifies it sanctifies every pastor's work with persons yeah so thank you for sharing that particular story Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. that is really really helpful Mm -hmm. and i'm guessing that it was probably more life-giving to you than to them Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah yeah Mm. yeah an incredible picture of the kingdom i think i could imagine jesus saying today the kingdom of god is like an escape room (laughs) <laughs> spending time oh, with yeah. three or four folk. But really, you know, Jay, thank you so much for being with us. It, you know, you sound hopeful about the church, which is amazing because the church has been through a lot over the last decade. Yeah. You know, we've all watched this tremendous shift that we're still in the middle of. And so I wonder if in closing, if you would share with us, why are you still hopeful? Yeah, I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful because the church has been through pandemics before. Mm -hmm. The church has been through wars and famines and 
unimaginable chaos and tragedy before, and yet God never ceases to be faithful yes. um, to the church. God never ceases to be faithful to his bride. And so, uh, you know, you think about the long overarching sort of arc of history and however long God has me on this side of eternity, you know, 50, 60, 80, 90 years, it is but a blip, you know, it's but a blip in eternity. And I'm hopeful about the church <laughs> that um, the gates of hell, Hades itself will not prevail as Jesus said. So I don't know how long Westgate Church will be here. My hope is that it's here for another 100 years, 200 years, 500 years doing faithful ministry here in this part of the world. But maybe she won't. Maybe she'll be here another 50 years and then we'll be done. I don't know. But Westgate is a name um, slapped on to a particular community of human beings who are trying to follow Jesus here and now. But the church is much bigger than us, hmm. and I'm hopeful about that. You know, whatever the name is or isn't of any particular group of Jesus followers in any particular time, in any particular place, the church, the single bride of Christ, you know, she will continue on. And there's nothing, nothing, um, you know, in hell itself that can stop that uh, from happening, from that story uh, continuing on. So, yeah, I'm immensely hopeful for sure. Amen. Uh, we're wrapping up here, but I want to make sh I want to, I want to plug your book again. Um, at the, you talk about the nature of worship. You talk about the nature of singing. You talk about the preached word. It's all, it's all very incarnational. And you close your last chapter is on the Lord's Supper. You, and you you call people to a reconsideration of faithfulness to the Eucharist, to the sacrament, which I just want to say amen to. But then you had this little line, you can't eat and drink online, <laughs> which kind of is an encapsulation of what we've been talking about here, that the life of Christ within us is life with others in person. Yeah. And uh, you've you've revealed your heart a little bit today. You have revealed your shepherd pastor heart, which I am really grateful for. And so um, the podcast is not about selling books, but I would love, I mean, of those who are listening, Analog Church is a great corrective. So I just wanted to make sure we, I gave due, due attention to how helpful your book was to articulating some of what I'm understanding and believing. So thank you. Mm. Thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Jay, at this table. Yes. Uh, we're, we're working this out the best we can with a lot of fear and trembling, uh, clinging to the power of the Spirit and praying for wisdom. And so thank, thank you for imparting your wisdom today as you seek to pastor that faithful flock of people mm. called Westgate. Oh, that means so much. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Friends, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Pastor's Table with Pastor J.Y. Kim. I don't know about you, Mark, but I'm ready to go to an escape room. I, I think maybe I can imagine a parable. The kingdom of God is like an escape room with six 20-year-olds 
You know, but really, uh, Shane Claiborne often talks about the seeds of the gospel are small and in places that are unseen. They're not on the big platforms and stages. And I just love how he gave us such a beautiful picture of the seeds of the gospel and the kingdom um, there in an escape room. It really was inspiring uh, to have uh, a pastor of what he was not too happy to call a megachurch speak of the shepherding nature of pastoral ministry was really, really helpful. Uh, That's what we're talking about. That's why we're here. Again, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, We want you to be a part of this conversation uh, by listening and share it. Share it with folks that you think might be helped by these conversations and join the conversation. Please join the conversation by emailing us and telling us your stories. We read these. Next week, Tara Beth and I will be talking about incarnation again, but not in reference to the church. We're going to be talking about the significance of the incarnation to pastoral identity. What does it mean for pastors to follow an incarnate Christ? I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. I'm looking forward to it. And so friends, until next time, may you be blessed as you serve faithfully in the gift of ministry that God has granted you.